Rightio. If you have your Bibles there, uh, open up to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to read from verse 14. If you're new to the Bible, Exodus is in right at the start of the Bible, second book of the Bible. Chapter 12 is the big number 12. And then verse 14, we're going to be reading from. It's great to be back in Exodus, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I have to sort of strain to remember the last time I heard uh, a message on Exodus. We're about a third of the way through a series that's going to take us really to the end of the year, looking at this beautiful uh, book of the Bible. If you need a Bible, uh, we do provide free copies uh, at the welcome desk. We'd love to give you one of those as a gift from us. Uh, Why don't you join with me in reading from Exodus chapter 12, 14 to 28, and then I'll pray for us as we get stuck in. Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the fourteenth day of the month at evening you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood That is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the, Lord, then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses, 
and Aaron, so they did. Why don't you pray with me? Lord God, we come before you this morning and we want to thank you for the beautiful gift of your word. Thank you, Lord, that you're not a God who's silent, but you're a God who speaks. And thank you, Lord, that this word in it contains everything that we need in order to please you. Lord, I just pray you'd help me this morning. Help me preach this word faithfully. Lord, give us tender hearts to to listen and hear and apply what we hear from you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I thought I'd start with a bit of a story uh, from my work, actually. Uh, Many of you you will know that I run a little uh, mobile physiotherapy business, and I go around and I see mainly older people and do physio with them uh, in their home. And I've got one client uh, who we'll call this morning Jenny. Now, Jenny has Alzheimer's disease. uh, And Jenny, even though uh, she's uh, a lady uh, of sort of, for me, a young age for a lot of my clients, of about 50 years of age, uh, it's a tragic story because I've watched this uh, young, relatively young woman just kind of fading away over the years that I've been seeing her. You know, Jenny was a woman who used to love music and sport and just laughter, and it's been really sad to see her just fade away uh, slowly over time. And one of the things and the interactions that I have with Jenny uh, in any time I visit her in the nursing home she lives in in our community, uh, we have this same conversation every time. I arrive in order to do her physiotherapy, and she looks at me and laughs and says, "'How did you find me here?' And I say, well, Jenny, you know me and my ways. I'm pretty sneaky. And we have this same conversation every single week. You see, for Jenny to remember something, I need to constantly remind her. To even keep her on task, I need to constantly keep reminding her. You know, if I stop reminding her about what we're doing, if I stop guiding her for even a moment, Jenny will wander off. She'll walk off. She might grab a drink or might start cleaning around the uh, aged care facility or she might start thinking that she should be doing some tidying or gardening. She's constantly distracted. And one of the tragic things about Jenny is that there's so many great things in her life. She has uh, these beautiful kids that really care about her. She has uh, these siblings who come frequently to visit her and who love her. She has these carers who sow hours into caring her, caring for her, but she's tragically oblivious to it all. Now, as I got thinking this week about Jenny, I realized that Jenny, in many ways, is a picture of our Christian lives. Firstly, like Jenny, we're often so distracted. I don't know about you, but sometimes from the moment we wake up with our iPhone, we can find ourselves scrolling through the news or Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or WhatsApp. As we're eating breakfast, you can find yourself kind of scrolling through sports scores from the night before, perhaps dipping in to check your work email. As you drive to work, uh, you might have a podcast playing in the background, but you decide you're going to switch to Spotify, and then when your phone pings, you ask Siri to read a text before you switch back to your podcast again. 
at work, you find yourself between tasks, constantly checking your email, and in between sort of rewarding yourself with a break as you flick to your social media, back to work, back to the news, off to the bathroom, but of course you bring your phone and scroll through your Instagram feed. At home, you're making dinner, but you've got the TV angled towards the kitchen because you're watching Netflix as you get through the latest series that you're watching. We live in a distracted age, an age addicted to immediate gratification and entertainment, and almost sometimes, I don't know, I've thought that we can even begin to feel a little bit uncomfortable even with our own company, as though our own thoughts, we need to be constantly distracted from them. More than that, we're not just distracted. I find that so often, as Christians, we're forgetful. As a Christian, the world is filled with glory. The beauty of the world that God has made, the stars, the trees, the oceans. I mean, here's a question I was thinking about uh, just yesterday. When was the last time I just stopped to stare at the stars in the sky? More still, we believe in the God who's come to us in Jesus, who's risen in glory, who reigns in the heavens, who dwells within us and is returning to take his place. You know, as Christians, our lives should be filled with amazement and glory, and yet so often we find ourselves distracted and forgetting. Well, this morning I've entitled the message, Lest We Forget. And really I've got three main points. The majority of the sermon is going to be point one, so don't freak out if you, if you think this is going to be an epically long sermon. The last two points are really brief. But really one hope for us. This morning, my one hope for this message is that I believe God wants to help us slow down and remember our glorious redemption. I think this text is a reminder for us of what God wants for us, and that is slowing down. Slowing down enough to remember the glorious redemption we have. Well, let's dive into our first point this morning, which is the Passover Explained. And what I wanted to do before we start, we kind of need to do some catching up on the story because for many of us, uh, you, I know you've joined us midway through the series and it's been several months. So let's begin by looking at the story that's got us to where we are here in Exodus. Uh, the beginning of our story, uh, well, it actually begins with a promise made to an elderly pagan man by the name of Abram. God speaks to Abram and he says, I will make you a great nation. And despite his old age, he believes God and he leaves his home and everything he's known for the land of Canaan. And true to God's promise, some 20 years later, he gives birth to, or his wife gives birth to, a son, Isaac. Isaac then fathers uh, another son called Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, Abraham's great grandchildren. Now, Joseph, we're introduced to uh, later on, who's child 11 of 12. He's one of the babies of the family, and he's favored a little bit by his father, Jacob, or Israel. And he's also arrogant. And his brothers, in response to this, uh, they actually plot to kill him. 
But Reuben, the oldest of the brothers, in the last minute intervenes and he's sold into slavery instead and ends up in Egypt. And after a series of events, Joseph rises in stature in Egypt and becomes an aide to the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt itself, where he ends up overseeing uh, an initiative to prepare for a prolonged famine. Now, back in his hometown of Canaan, uh, things have been bad with this famine, and the famine actually leads Jacob and his sons to the brink of starvation. And in response, they come to Egypt, where they're welcomed by Joseph, and they take up residence as a whole family in Egypt. And we have those famous words at the end of Genesis where Joseph, speaking to his brothers, says, What you intention for evil, God intention for good, that many people might be saved. And so we begin the Exodus, the book of Exodus, as we read in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Hundreds of years pass since Joseph, and Joseph is long forgotten, and a new king takes the throne. And because of the threat of the increasingly expanding people of God, he begins to become fearful, and he decides that he's going to put Abraham's descendants into slavery. And when slavery doesn't work, he decides he's going to try genocide by murdering the males of every family and having them thrown into the Nile. And so he enlists two midwives called Shipra and Pua. And yet these midwives fear God more than they fear Pharaoh, and they refuse to comply with his wishes. And so the people of God begin to continue to multiply. And so Pharaoh then reaches out to all of Egypt to enlist them in this genocide, and yet at the same time, The more Pharaoh oppresses, the more God blesses, and the people of God continue to multiply. In our story, then, Moses is born and placed in the Nile, where he's drawn out by Pharaoh's daughter and placed into the king's palace. And it's just this beautiful picture of God's plan, of how God would draw his people out of Egypt to himself, how they would be drawn out to draw in to the knowledge of God, to be his people. And Moses begins to grow and develop as this promising leader of Israel until he sees a Hebrew slave being beaten and murders the Egyptian taskmaster who's beating the, Egypt, uh, who's beating the Hebrew in thinking that he could take his place as a rebellion leader of his people. And yet his leadership is rejected and he flees for his life to the desert of Midian. Here in the desert... God hasn't forgotten him. And he meets this man Jethro, the priest, also known as Ruel, the friend of God. And he marries Jethro's daughter and spends a lifetime working as a shepherd in the desert. Forty years pass, and yet God hasn't forgotten. And we read in the story in Exodus chapter 2, 23, During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. 
God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Moses is now 80 years old. He had grown up in Pharaoh's house and yet was a failed leader, impoverished, seemingly at the end of his life, working as a lowly shepherd. And God appears to him in a burning bush and he sends him out. And despite Moses' repeated objections, I mean repeated objections, he returns to Egypt in obedience. And he appears before Pharaoh with miraculous signs and he demands he release God's people. And yet Pharaoh refuses and in fact makes their conditions worse. You see, because God strengthens Pharaoh's resolve to follow through on his heart's intention in order that God might display his glory, not just to Egypt, but to all the nations of the earth. And so God sends multiple signs, water that turns to blood, frogs, gnats, flies. He kills their livestock. He sends boils and hail and locusts and darkness. And then we read in chapter 10, 28, it says, Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me and take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you, Moses, shall die. And Moses says, As you say, I will not see your face again. As the Lord had promised, Pharaoh stubbornly refuses. And God promises a final plague. We read in chapter 11, 4, So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. And in order to prepare for this final plague and their deliverance, God gives his people a special ritual to perform. The Passover, or in Hebrew, Pesach, and a week-long festival called the Feast of Flatbread, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Read with me verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. You see, this wasn't to be just a one-off ritual, but God is instituting something that was to be passed down from generation to generation as a yearly ritual. You know, 3,000 years later, and Jewish people still celebrate the Pesach, The question I want to ask this morning is, what happened during the Feast of Flatbread and the Passover? And I want us to spend some time uh, unpacking it and having a look at it. Well, firstly, all yeast was to be removed from every home for the period of one week. Uh, In verse 15, it says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, 
that person shall be cut off from Israel. Any bread with yeast or any bread that was left and was souring uh, was not to be eaten but was to be removed. Why? Well, it was that they might remember that during the Exodus, they had to leave in a hurry. In verse 39, later on in our passage, it explains that uh, it says the following. It says, And they baked unleavened cakes of dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. It was so important to the people of God that they remembered that they had to leave in such a hurry, that they remembered that moment, that to disobey, Moses says, was to be excommunicated. Not only that all yeast had to be removed from their houses for a week, but secondly, they held a special gathering of all the people on the first day and the last day of the week. Verse 16 says the following, it says, On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on these days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for by you. It was this yearly rhythm of rest and reflection. Rest and not work on those days. Only gather to worship God. Thirdly, families would offer a sacrifice, um, a sacrifice of a flawless lamb on the twilight before the feast week. So four days before the set date, that's the 10th day of the month of Abib or Nisan, which is a lunar calendar, so following the moon, they would have set aside a flawless lamb, a lamb that had no imperfections whatsoever and was one year old or less. And families were organized and arranged such that small households were grouped together so that there'd be no waste of meat. And at twilight, on the 14th day, an elder from the family would slit the throat of this little lamb, collect its blood in a bowl. Uh, We read the following in verse 21. It says this, it says, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Take some hyssop, which is kind of like a type of um, majorum, and use it like a brush to paint the door frames of your house with blood. And the result is that the destroyer, or probably better, the destruction, will not enter your home. And fourthly, and finally, that night they would gather together and eat a Passover meal together as a family. They would gather together to eat, dressed and ready to leave, staff in hand, shoes on, which for me, being married to Charlotte uh, as an Asian, that's normally completely unacceptable uh, in the house, but shoes on, uh, belt fastened and tunic tucked in and ready to go. And they would eat the meal, not slowly, but in a hurry. Well, what's it all about? What's the significance of the Passover for Israel? 
Uh, what did it all mean? Well, firstly, they were stopping to remember the birth of their nation. Uh, at the very beginning of our chapter, in verse, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says the following. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Their whole calendar was to be reshaped to make the year begin here. This is your new January, God's saying. Every year will, be, will begin with remembering this moment. It's also the first time the people are described as coming together as a congregation. Uh, verse 6, it says, Assembly of the Congregation of Israel. There are people now. God is fulfilling His promise to make them His precious nation. You shall be my people. I shall be your God. I'm drawing you out to drawing you in. They were stopping to remember their birthday as a nation. But secondly, they were stopping to remember their deliverance from Egypt. Uh, Read with me verse 8. It says the following, They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted in the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Jumping down to verse 11, as we've mentioned, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Bitter herbs, they were meant to remind them of their bitter lives in Egypt. You know, he had warned Pharaoh at the very beginning that uh, what would happen, sorry, they were to be dressed and ready for action because of the hurry of their departure. And every year from then on, they would kind of reenact the moment for those who would never get to experience it. Year on, year out, reenacting the moment of their deliverance. They were stopping to remember their deliverance. But thirdly, they were also stopping to remember God's power over the false gods of the nations around them. Check out chapter 12, verse 12. It says the following. It says, For I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. God was bringing his justice to bear upon the land of Egypt. He'd warned Pharaoh at the very beginning that ignoring these warnings would cost him his own son. And he'd ignored that that warning, and as a result, was experiencing judgment. But not just upon Pharaoh, all the gods of Egypt, God was showing them to be false. They were stopping to remember the birth of their nation. They were stopping to remember their deliverance from Egypt. They were stopping to remember God's power over the false gods of the nations. And they were stopping to remember the means of their redemption. Why don't you read with me verse 13, which says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Notice what God doesn't say. He doesn't say, when I see a Hebrew house, I will pass over. This isn't about one race being superior to another. The Lord is about to manifest His presence in Egypt and pass by in judgment. 
And rightly, every home would deserve the judgment of this holy God. What causes the Lord to pass by is not their race, but when I see the blood. It's when I see the blood of the Lamb, then I will pass over you. You see, by trusting in God's instructions to paint the blood on the door, they mark themselves as holy. Just as later in Leviticus, priests would be set aside as holy with blood painted on their right earlobe, on their right thumb, and on their right big toe. Just as blood for them marked them out as holy, so this blood the blood of the Lamb, was to mark the people of God as holy unto God, set apart by God. And so they paused to remember that blood was the cost of their salvation. Blood, the blood of the Lamb, was the means of grace. And in our passage, the Passover is established as a central rhythm in the life of God's people. Year after year, they would have set aside a week to stop and remember. To remember their nation's birth. To remember their deliverance. To remember God's power and the blood that was spilt to set them free. Because God knew His people. He knew they're prone to forget. And so He gives this important ritual to help them to stop and remember. Well, that's point one, the Passover explained. And now we come to point two, the Passover fulfilled. You see, in many ways, the true significance of the Passover would remain a mystery to the people of God for more than a thousand years until Jesus arrives on the scene. We read the following at the end of Matthew's biography of Jesus in Matthew chapter 26. It says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, that is the the feast of flat bread, the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. And here we come and into this account of Jesus' life. And it's the night of his betrayal. But also, it's the night of the Passover. And Matthew writes, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine, until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus takes his disciples and would have 
had before them at that time the full Passover meal, and he takes some flatbread and completely reinterprets 1,500 years of tradition. And John Stott, uh, writing on this very passage and about this very topic, says the following. He says, The New Testament clearly identifies the death of Christ as the fulfillment of the Passover and the emergence of his new and redeemed community as the new exodus. It is not only that John the Baptist hailed Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, nor only that according to John's chronology of the end, Jesus was hanging at the cross at the precise time when the Passover lambs were being slaughtered, nor even that in the book of Revelation he is worshipped as the slain lamb who by his blood had purchased men for God. It is especially that Paul categorically declares, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of everything that we see in this account of the Passover. The Passover was always about Jesus. It was always pointing to him and his work on the cross. The flatbread was symbolic of his body broken on the cross. The wine symbolic of his blood poured out for forgiveness. Just as any person without the blood of the lamb on their door would have experienced destruction, Jesus would pour out his blood on the cross for our forgiveness. Just as the people of God took that blood and by faith painted it on their doors, so too, by faith, we take the blood of Jesus and allow it to cleanse us. God knows we're so easily distracted. God knows we're so prone to forget the glorious story of our redemption. And so Jesus gave us a new ritual to remember the beginning of our exodus as his people. A new rhythm of slowing down, of stopping to remember our redemption. You see, the Passover pointed to and was fulfilled by Jesus. That he would deliver his people from slavery, darkness and death. That he would deliver his people by the means of his blood. That he would prove his power over the false gods of the nations. That he would lead his people on a new exodus. Freedom as part of a new people. And that's our second point, the Passover fulfilled. And now we come to our final point, the Passover applied. You know, we've looked at the Feast of Flatbread and the Passover and what it meant for Israel. And we've also spent some time examining how it also pointed to Jesus. But how do we, how do we apply this passage to us? How do we take this scripture and apply it to our own lives? And I've spent some time thinking about it this week, and I really have two points for us to take away as we reflect on this. Firstly, this passage is a reminder of the importance of teaching our children the story of our redemption in Christ. When you read with me verses 26 and 27 at the end of our passage, it says, And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, Is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, 
For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. You see, at this time, it was the responsibility of fathers to lead their families through the celebration of the Passover, of stopping to remember, of recounting the story of their deliverance. It was the responsibility, so too now, it's the responsibility of parents and especially fathers to lead their families to stop and remember, to teach children of the glories of Christ. So the question I want to ask this morning to parents and especially to dads is, how are you going in teaching your kids the story of our redemption in Jesus? How are you going in teaching your kids, in leading your family to stop and remember? You know, we live in a culture that idolizes career and affluence. And so the training of kids often can be outsourced to others, even as Christians. Sometimes perhaps to Christian schools or churches with a great kids program or a great youth group, which are all good things. But in the Bible, primary responsibility for training children rests with parents. No kids program, no youth group, no school can ever replace our calling. I wonder if this morning some of you are struggling. You're, you're, you're trying, but you're finding it difficult. Difficult to train your kids. I want to invite you to ask someone to disciple you. Tap someone on the shoulder and ask them, could you help me in this? Well, that's the first application. This passage is a reminder of the importance of teaching our children the story of our redemption in Christ. But point two, second application for this passage, and I think the primary application, is that this passage is a reminder that we all need a rhythm of slowing down to remember our redemption. You see, God didn't just set Israel free from Egypt. He set them free and gave them an ongoing ritual. An annual rhythm of life, a week to slow down and remember what he has done for them. You know, our Lord Jesus fulfilled the Passover and he gave us the Lord's Supper to help us to continue to slow down and remember. And yet the truth is, We're so often and in so many ways just like Jenny. We may not have actual Alzheimer's, but we're so often distracted by a million cheap pleasures. Forgetting the glories of Jesus. You know, if I'm honest with you guys this morning, sometimes I feel like my relationship with Jesus is so superficial because I can't sit without being distracted. We can be caught up in so many things that we're even afraid 
of our own company, our own uninterrupted thoughts. The question I want us to consider this week is what could you do this week to build a more faithful rhythm of slowing down to remember your redemption. Slowing down to just stare at Jesus. You know, this week, Wednesday, it's the start of Lent. And maybe you want to take up that tradition of Lent and give something up to focus you on Jesus in the lead up to Easter. Maybe you want to go through a gospel and just spend some time chewing on the words of Jesus. Maybe you want to do some regular fasting or, like for instance, maybe on a Friday once a month. Maybe you want to start a new tradition of meeting up with friends just to break bread and remember Jesus. Maybe you want to start leading your family in family devotions. Maybe you want to start carving out some space in your week where you're just going to go tech-free, turn your phone off, so that you can spend some time looking at Jesus. Maybe you just want to get out and take more walks and look up at the stars and remember the one who made it all. What could you do this week to build a more faithful rhythm of slowing down to stop and remember your redemption. Well, in closing, the Passover feast and the feast of flatbread were beautiful gifts given by God to help his people slow down and remember their salvation. Beautiful gifts that were fulfilled by Jesus at the cross and replaced with the Lord's Supper. I hope you've seen this morning that God wants to help us to slow down and remember our glorious redemption. Why don't you join with me in praying? Lord Jesus, we want to come before your throne and we want to thank you that you are never in a hurry. You're never too busy to spend time with us. Lord, we come as your people with hearts that just are repentant, Lord. We want to We want to slow down. We want to stop and we want to remember you. We're so sorry we fail time and time again to remember the glories of all you've done for us at the cross. Lord Jesus, help us as your people to find a true rhythm of stopping frequently to remember our story of your great exodus, how you, the true Passover lamb, paid it all for us that destruction might not enter our homes, but that your righteous wrath might be passed over us and that we could be led out from captivity to freedom as part of your true people. What a beautiful story of grace. Help us remember it, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.